You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for the beautiful sunshine. And uh, we're grateful for the rain as well, for the reasons we've talked about. And this world is in a drought, not of physical rain, but of spiritual rain. And Lord, we just pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to us in the abundance of the latter rain again, as you've promised. And thank you for hearing our prayer. Guide our class today. May your spirit speak through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to dig right in this morning. We, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, literally a lot, of, uh, a lot of material we want to share with you today. A couple of quick things I want to mention to you. These are the books that we've been speaking of. And those of who have been in my classes a couple in the last couple of years know I've been referring to them heavily. You really can't understand where we are today if you've not read these books. And I'm, I'm telling you, I've given this to lay people. They've read the book and they said their lives have been changed. I want to encourage you, if you've not read these books, that you need to read these books. Um, they're available. I'm not sure whether they're available at the ABC, but I know there's a booth across the way here in the exhibit tent. And I know that these books are available over there. And if you don't have them, please get a hold of them and read them. Now, you can get them free, as uh, Elder Howard said, but my encouragement to you is this is one of those times when you need a physical book. And don't forget the footnotes as you read these, especially in this book. You must read them. Ron Duffield is the author of the book, uh, both books, and uh, you want to make sure that you take advantage of it. Yes, sir? Somebody's requested, could you share the, the titles for the people who are, if they can't see it necessarily on the camera? Well, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> the Return of the Latter Rain is the blue one, and it has raindrops all over it, so you know it's the Return of the Latter Rain. And the Wounded, wounded in the House of His Friends is, uh, is the other one. Uh, this one was the original book, and he's promised the uh, second volume of this book, uh, but he hadn't gotten the second book out, so he came out with a, with a kind of an interim book, and we're still bugging him for the, for the second book. But the trouble is he's, he's such a researcher that he's digging so deep, and he's just got too much to put in. And I'm trying to encourage him, look, you've got to get this book out. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't, yeah, and he's a layperson. That's part of the challenge. He has a real day job, and that's part of the difficulty he has. What, and, uh, what is the name of the booth where we can get it? I don't remember what the name of the booth is. Prayer, prayer booth. Oh, is it the prayer booth oh, over there? Prayer yeah, prayer okay. Prayer. Yeah. yeah, and Rob, uh, Rob okay, is, has it over there. All right, I saw another hand. Narita, I saw your hand. Did you get your question answered? Okay, good. Another book that we've been referring to is Faith and Works, and this is by uh, Ellen White, a compilation of her statements in regard to this. So that's available. I know that's at the ABC for sure and encourage you to uh, get a hold of that. Um, and so we want to uh, just dig in real quick here and, and review what we've talked about. 
review just gets our mind back into gear. You go to other seminars, you go to other other presentations, and now we got to get our brain back in gear here. So what did we talk about yesterday? Uh, we talked about the fact that when we believe God with the same quality of faith that Abraham believed him, that you can find that he, Jesus, gives life to the dead, that he creates all things out of nothing, that whatever he promises, he is more than able to perform. And when we believe God like that, then his perfect righteousness is imputed, credited, posted to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Reviewing the statement that Ellen White uh, uh, made in um, Faith and Works, page 101, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Quoting from Romans 4, verse 3, Righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness, and this is the sinner, uh, this the sinner owes to the law, but he is incapable of rendering it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. By faith, he can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his Son to the sinner's account. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. What do we have to give? Nothing. What does Christ have to give? Everything. What do we need? What Christ has. And we have failure, he has victory, and that he imparts to us. God receives, and God receives pardons, just receives pardons, justifies the repentant believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous, and loves him as his son. This is how faith is accounted righteousness. You know, that, that's about as clear as it gets. Go home, read it. Thank you for being here today. I mean, that, that just kind of summarizes it. Faith and Works, page 101. Um, on page 106, she says, It is the righteousness of Christ that makes the penitent sinner acceptable to God and works his justification. However sinful has been his life, if he believes in Jesus as his personal Savior, he stands before God in the spotless robe of, robes of Christ's imputed righteousness. Powerful statements for you and for me. And supported by the Scriptures. Or, better put, the Scriptures are supported by what Ellen White shares with us. Okay? Both are intertwined and interact. It, scriptures are clear. Now, you can't have a discussion about righteousness by faith without a date showing up in there somewhere. What's the date? 1888. You just can't, within Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the way God is led in this church, have a discussion without mentioning 1888. And the trouble is that some people get... Uh, connected with that date, and then start doing all kinds of strange things. I actually, a couple of years ago, I was teaching my class, and somebody came uh, after a couple of days of class and said they were talking to one of our retired pastors who had retired in another state somewhere, and he had been a teacher in a Sabbath school class, but he would mention 1888 from time to time, and people got angry at him for even mentioning it. I'm saying, what's this? What's this? This is our history. 
That, that, that was a reality. Ellen White makes it clear that this is something that we need. Why? How? What does she say? Remember the letter that she wrote to O.A. Olson? She said, The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through Elder Jones and Wagner. Why would we start getting angry about Jesus' most precious message? I don't get that. You get that? Part of it is because the devil has gotten in the way. He stirred all kinds of confusion. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to simplify and relieve that confusion. He continues, she continues, this message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands, that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. That's us. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. To whom? To whom is it supposed to be given? Is it just us? No, we're supposed to be teaching this to the world. It's the same kind of scenario where Jesus was trying to help the, the Jews understand that their reason for existence at his time was to share the message of the Messiah. And then there was the Messiah and they were rejecting him. Ellen White uses the same language in relationship to this message. That's a whole another issue, but anyway... This is the message God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which proclaimed to the, with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure. In a letter written to a church leader in 1893, Ellen White said, We know that Brother Jones has been giving the message for this time, meet in due season for the starving flock of God. This connection with 1888 and the message there is so critical to us today. Elder Howard, you're going to come and help us to understand why this was meet in due season and why it's meet in due season for us. But before you come up, I just want to mention this one thing. I am keep reminded of the fact that this is the return of the latter rain. The problem we have today is we have forgotten what God has done for us in the past. We keep asking for something that he has already given us. Already given us. He already sent the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. The problem is we had a problem in understanding that. And that's what we need to talk about today. What is the heart of that message? Elder Howard? Well, I have a difficulty even answering that question. And this is what I mean. When you're dealing with a subject like righteousness by faith, everybody has an angle they view it from. And I can only tell you, with my experience, how it impacted me. And in our presentation, I've drawn out what I feel was a stirring part of the message. Now, I wish I had this on the screen. I have part of a quote on the screen that as Elder Snaman was talking, uh, I felt I really want to, to uh, look at. Um, and before we do, I just invite you to bow your heads as I ask the Lord to bless our, our time. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you again for the privilege we have of coming together to study your word.
Lord, we desire truth, not truth in the outward parts, but the inward parts, the truth that will help us to be open to receive the righteousness of Christ, to follow your leading, to be open to receiving the outpouring of the Spirit in large measure. I pray that you would be present with us now during uh, the remainder of this seminar, Lord, and again on this entire campground. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1888 materials, the statement appears elsewhere. We've shared part of it here already. Uh, this is on page 897. Ellen White says, Many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Into, these definitions, uh, into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. Why try to be more minute than is inspiration on the vital question of righteousness by faith? Listen to the next sentence. Why try to work out every minute point as if the salvation of the soul depended upon all having exactly your understanding of this matter? And I feel too often, I don't want to be one that says, you've got to think exactly just like this or you can't have it. I'm not going to say that. She's guarding against that here. She says... All cannot see in the same line of vision. You're in danger of making a world of an atom and an atom of a world. Our desire in this seminar is to give you something to take away that will inspire and encourage you with this message. I remember when I first came into the... I, sh I shared... Maybe I didn't share here. I'm doing another seminar. I don't remember sometimes. But my family left the Seventh-day Adventist Church when I was about 15 years old during the Desmond Ford crisis. And we were out of the church until I was about 26 years old. That's when the Lord got a hold of me. And I remember when I first came into the Adventist church, there were a couple guys in our church that would throw around these names, Jones and Wagner. And I had no idea who they were, um, but, but curiosity got the better of me. And I, I ran into an old friend who had a book of A.T. Jones' sermons from the 1893 General Conference session. And I'd heard the names, heard the names, heard the, oh, okay, this is interesting. Uh, I want to find out what it says. And I read through those sermons. And they were so powerful. Uh, I began to look out, search out other things. And I have to tell you something about myself, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. But in, in those days, for example, it's the same way today. Just about every Bible available is a study Bible. And so here's the Bible, and then there's a bunch of notes to tell you what you're supposed to think about it. And as a brand new Christian, I think the Lord was guiding me when I got, I, in fact, I had, uh, my brother gave me a beautiful study Bible. My brother Jim will be here later this week in another seminar. And if he, sometimes he brings that story up about how he paid, got me this expensive Bible for Christmas and I ended up losing it. But anyway, part of the issue was I didn't want to study Bible. I said, Lord, I just want the Bible text. I just want the Bible. I don't want somebody else telling me what the Bible. Well, it was the same way when I ran into Jones and Wagner's materials. There were other books of theirs that I can recommend, but there are some that are abridged and clarified, and I didn't want that. I want to know what Jones and Wagner taught. So I read uh, a book called Wagner on Romans, still available, phenomenal book. Lessons on Faith, phenomenal book. Uh, Glad Tidings, no offense to Robert Whelan, but I recommend the unabridged version. <laughs> Across the board, uh, some of the most powerful things that I read, and, and, and I want to share with you um, as we look at this message, what I think was a, a, a powerful catalyst. I have met, I remember when I first went to my church and, and I asked people about Jones and Wagner. 
The response was, oh, we don't study them. Didn't they leave the church? How many of you heard that before? How many of you are aware that Ellen White, before they ever apostatized, which they did, warned that people would use that as an excuse not to listen to the message? Are you aware of that? She said, if these men fall away, some would make in what she called a fatal mistake in, in thinking that the message that they gave wasn't from the Lord. And so, you know, that was, I've had that response from church members. I've had that response from pastors who've never even read the material. Seminary told them, no, 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 you don't want to go there because those guys got up into this. I'm like, what? <laughs> if for no other reason, for our history. Anyway, I'm not going to go on that too much. I want to talk about first the creative power of the word. This is something, one of the first things that hit me in this message. We learned yesterday that one of the qualities of Abraham's faith was that he believed that whatever God said, he was able to perform. That he believed according to what was spoken, it says there in Romans chapter 4. A belief in the creative power of God's word is essential, I believe, to the experience of righteousness by faith. And I believe that Jones and Wagner believed that. In 1898, A.T. Jones wrote a series of articles in the Review and Herald on uh, in the book Lessons on Faith. And they were Lessons on Faith. He starts that series with this quote from Ellen White, where she says, The Scripture declares that without faith it is impossible to please God. The knowledge of what Scripture means when urging upon the human agent the necessity of cultivating faith is what? More essential than any other knowledge we can acquire. Um, and I should have the reference there, and I don't. I apologize. That is, um, that comes from manuscript 13, no, manuscript 76 from uh, 1898. Now, Jones begins his series with that statement, and then he makes this observation. Plainly, now this is Jones writing, plainly it must be to little purpose to urge a person upon a person the necessity of cultivating faith while that person has no intelligent idea of what faith is. And it is sadly true that though the Lord has made this perfectly plain in the scriptures, there are many church members who do not know what faith is. They may even know what the definition of faith is, but they do not know what the thing is. They do not grasp the idea that's in the definition. And so he launches in this series to teach what faith is and what it means to cultivate faith. And I'm just taking you through some few, a few key points in this in this series of articles. Uh, he proceeds, incidentally, um, Jean Ross shared that passage the other night. In fact, I think Jean Ross shared the first two presentations, <laughs> uh, articles of Jones from Lessons in Faith in his sermon the other night. Because Jones goes on to talk about that story of the centurion who came to Jesus. Were you in there when Elder uh, Ross shared that the other night? Where the centurion came to Jesus and he had a servant he wanted healed. And you remember what Jesus said? He says, I'll come and heal him. I'll come. And what did the centurion respond? I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but do what? Say, speak a word only, and it'll be done. So Jones reviews that story. And incidentally, in the Bible, what does it say? Jesus marveled. <laughs> I mean, to have Jesus marvel at your faith, you know, you, you know those things that make your jaw drop. This is Jesus. He's like, such amazing, and from a Gentile. And Jesus said, I have not found such great faith, not in Israel. Now, Jones draws this conclusion. He says, faith 
is the expecting is, ex is the expecting the word of God to do what it says and the depending upon that word to do what it says. That's his definition of faith. You could go to Romans 10, 17. What does it say in Romans 10, 17? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's just building on that concept. Faith, this is what the centurion did. He believed in the word of God and expected it to do what it said. He believed there was power in the word. Now, if you have read this series of articles, this becomes a mantra of Jones all the way through the article. He keeps coming back to this definition of faith. Faith is the expecting the word of God to do what it says and the depending upon that word to do what it says. Well, you would expect that then when we talk about justification by faith, he plugs it in. He makes the application and says this, justification by faith then is justification by depending upon the word of God only and expecting that word only to accomplish it. Pretty straightforward thinking, right? Now, Jones continues in this series to turn to the uh, story, the account of creation. And he says this, quoting from Genesis, the world, I'm sorry, from Hebrews, the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Right? Something from nothing. Once there were no worlds, nor was there any of the material which now composes those worlds. There was nothing, right? God set forth Christ to declare the word which should produce the worlds and the very material of which they should be composed. There was nothing, and he spake, and it was. He says, in man, now he takes that, you're following this, right? Creation, there was nothing, and God spoke, and what happened? Now there's something from nothing. There didn't need to be something there. It wasn't like, like God said, I can't do it yet because I have to have some material to begin with. How's the old story go of the atheist and God, right? And the atheist denies that things came about naturally. And God says, okay, you work out your plan and I'll work out my plan. And, and, and we'll see who's right. And the guy says, okay. And he gets down and he starts working with the dirt. And God says, no, 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 no. You go get your own dirt. Right? God started with nothing. So Jones makes the application. In man, there is no righteousness from which righteousness can appear in his life, right? There's nothing in terms of righteousness. But God has set forth Christ to declare righteousness unto and upon man. Christ has spoken the word only, and in the darkened void of man's life, there is righteousness to everyone who will receive it. Amen. I mean, what a powerful, right? There was darkness. God said, let there be light, and boom, there's light. And Jones takes that, and he says, there's this darkness in terms of righteousness. But when God speaks the word of righteousness, what happens? It's there. Notice how Jones holds to belief that justification is God declaring a person righteous. Yet, because there is creative power in the word of God, God's declaration of righteousness actually produces righteousness where there was none. Are you following that? Then finally, turning to Romans 5, verse 1, Jones concludes. Oh, i got to finish this statement. We didn't finish the statement, so <clears throat> I'm going to get the run in here. In man there's no righteousness from which righteousness can appear in his life. But God has set forth Christ to declare righteousness unto and upon man. Christ has spoken the word only, and in the darkened void of man's life there is righteousness to everyone who will receive it. 
where before the word is received, there was neither righteousness nor anything which could possibly produce righteousness. Not of yourselves, not of works, right? After the word is received, there is perfect righteousness and the very fountain from which it springs. So then he goes on to Romans 5.1 and he makes this point. Notice that the parentheses are his point as he's reading this. He says, therefore, being justified or made righteous by faith, by expecting and depending upon the word of God only, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is so, bless the Lord, and feeding upon this blessed thing is cultivating faith. Some powerful thoughts there from Elder Jones. Now, I don't know. Yeah, we have a, ver we have a varied room in here, so... Some of you have studied the subject more than others. Some of you may be aware that this whole concept of justifying a person, actually making them righteous, is a point of contention in our church. It's a big point of contention when it comes to this. In fact, it's called a false theology or Catholic theology. I didn't always realize that. I'm coming from the standpoint that when I first read these things as a new Christian, they were so powerful. Because when you come to Christ... The, the, the per what do I want to say? The first thing you realize is that you have no righteousness and that Christ has to be your righteousness, that there's nothing in you that's going to get you from here to there. And when I learned these things, I realized that it doesn't matter whether I have righteousness because Christ has righteousness. And it doesn't matter if I don't have strength, because it's not about my strength. It's about his strength. It's about his righteousness. It's about his works. And the idea of his word having power in it, just, it just stirred my heart. So it just, I think the first time I realized that people have a contention with this and say, no, 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 uh, righteousness is only a declaration. Well, I'll, let me explain a little bit. At the heart of their message, at the heart of Wagner and Jones' message, was the idea that when God declares a person righteous, he makes that person righteous. You know, if you read certain people's writings, I mean, they're, sometimes, I mean, I'll, I'll talk for myself. I can't even think of something. You know, there are ideas that I may have that are just, they're on the peripheral of the core of my faith. There are things that, that you believe, and, and maybe you believe and I believe, that we hold in common, and there may be things here that I look at a little differently, like what's the wheel within a wheel in Ezekiel? Well, I don't know. It's good. But there are core parts and the idea of justification, making a person righteous, was not an incidental sideline thing in this message. This was part and parcel. You will read it over and over and over, and you're going to see more of that as we go. Both Jones and Wagner considered justification as an act of God which transforms sinners and makes them righteous through the creative power of his word. And that's where our hope comes from. I don't have to worry about not having righteousness because I have a Savior who speaks and it becomes a reality. At the 1893 General Conference session where Jones was a keynote speaker, he preached, therefore being justified by faith. What do you say? And the congregation responds, amen. And then he says, therefore being made righteous, comma, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. In his understanding, being justified, that declarative word, transforms a man and makes him righteous. E.J. Wagner, in 1894, wrote a series of articles on the book of Romans in the UK version of The Present Truth. 
Uh, those series were reprinted in the Signs of the Times over a 12-month period in 1896 and finally compiled into a little book called Wagner on Romans, which I would recommend. Phenomenal book. couple statements from that book. Uh, page, what's this, page 70, Wagner says, The last verse of the third chapter of Romans tells us that by faith we establish the law. Moreover, the very term justification shows that faith performs the requirement of the law. Faith makes a man a doer of the law, for that is the meaning of the term justification by faith. So in James, we read that the works of Abraham simply showed the perfection of his faith. Let me pause there. You remember we talked about Abraham and how there was that contention, like, was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? And so Wagner's making the application we did the other day. He's not saying he's saved by his works. He's saying his works evidenced the power of faith. Again, on page uh, 66 of that book, Wagner makes the point, justification means making just or making righteous. Righteousness is right doing. Faith which justifies, therefore, is faith which makes a man a doer of the law, or rather, which puts the doing of the law into him. We're going to expound on that as we go on. A man is not justified by faith and works, but by faith alone, which works. And you've heard that expression before. So it should come as no surprise to us that Ellen White herself, who gave such strong endorsement to the preaching of Jones and Wagner, also taught that justification includes making a person righteous. Some statements from inspiration. Faith I Live by page 112. Ellen White says, having what? Made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Remember, imputed righteousness has to do with justification. Having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. He looks upon us as his dear children. Steps to Christ, page 23. Notice, how shall a man be what? Let's just pause there. How is a man just with God? Through the process of justification, right? So I just want you to understand, she didn't use the word there. In fact, Ellen White doesn't use the word justification through the entire book of Steps to Christ. But she uses the concept... Very clearly here, how is a man just with God? And then, paralleling, how shall the sinner be made righteous? Same idea. How are you justified? How are you made righteous? It is only through Christ that we can be brought into harmony with God with holiness. Again, from Manuscript 116, page 1904, or I mean, printed in 1904, page 24. She says, The majesty of heaven revealed before the world a sinless character that his salvation might be revealed into the lives I'm sorry in the lives of his disciples through his grace they are justified comma made righteous Ellen White went so far and this might be a surprise to some of you because oftentimes when we talk about transformation and especially keeping the commandments of God there's justification and imputed righteousness that establishes our standing with God. And then there's sanctification and imparted righteousness. And typically when we think about being empowered to keep the law of God, what are we thinking of? Sanctification. But I want you to notice these statements from Ellen White. Review and Herald, June 12, on July 12, 1892. She says, the law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the what? Imputed righteousness of Christ. We're going to explain what that means as we go on probably more tomorrow than today. Again, Signs of the Times, June 18, 1894. 
Christ clothed his divinity with humanity and endured the test upon the point of appetite, ambition, and love of the world. Those are the three tests in the wilderness when the devil came to tempt him. The three areas Adam and Eve fell. Thus making it possible for man to keep the commandments of God through his imputed righteousness. Through faith in Christ, man becomes, and this she explains it a little bit, through faith in Christ, man becomes partaker of the divine nature. Have you read that in Scripture, partakers of the divine nature, in 2 Peter chapter 1? When does man become partaker of the divine nature? Let me, let me back up. When, what, is taking, what is the experience that makes a man a partaker of the divine nature? When that divine, the divine nature is God's nature put into man. What is that? The new birth, right? We're born of the divine nature. You're born again. When does that happen? When you accept Christ. What do we call that? Justification. I mean, in other words, she's simply saying, well, I'll say it and then we'll expound on it. As we said the other day, the righteousness of Christ is in the person of Christ. When we receive Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives where? When did that start? At justification. When I accepted Christ at that moment, that's when I'm born again and Christ dwells in. This is what's being related here. And so we'll talk about the interplay between imparted and imputed. But we become righteous by Christ because we receive Christ. Christ doesn't have a righteousness apart from himself. It's in himself. So I had looked at this statement. I read to you again as we started in. I had the ellipsis there, and so I wanted to read that part in the middle about not having everybody having the same exact idea. But Ellen White warned, she said, many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. You're in danger of making a world of an atom and an atom of a world. I fear that this is exactly what's happened in the church when it comes to our understanding of righteousness by faith. In salvation theology, for those who maybe haven't studied it, in, in, in theological circles we call it soteriology, the gospel's broken down into the objective gospel and the subjective gospel. Has anybody ever heard these terms? Objective means outside of you. It's apart from you. It's what it, there's not, your response is not part of it. It's, it's, it's apart from you. Subjective is what happens in the subject. So any, the work of the Spirit on the heart, that's subjective. You understand what I'm saying? You making a choice, that's subjective. While Seventh-day Adventists have historically understood both justification and sanctification as including both objective and subjective elements, much of evangelical Christianity has taught that justification and even the gospel itself is only objective and sanctification is subjective. So, for example, because the Holy Spirit's work on the heart is subjective, it's not part of the gospel and it's not part of justification in evangelical Christianity. Are you aware of that? Because that's something that happens. It is unbiblical. That would mean a justification. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless there's Spirit's work on the heart, you can't, be, you can't go to heaven. That means a justified person can't go to heaven. But this is, <laughs> what's coming is going to alarm you, probably. It should. But anyway, this is the viewpoint. Uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, of course, have viewed the, 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 blend, the you know, justification and sanctification having both objective and subjective. 
But evangelical, much of evangelical Christianity is taught that justification and even the gospel itself is only objective, while sanctification is subjective, the fruit of the gospel. I've heard it in our church. People say the gospel, justification is the gospel, and sanctification is the fruit of the gospel. That's not what Adventists believe as a whole. According to this viewpoint from the evangelicals, the atonement was completed at the cross. This, they say, is the reason why Jesus cried out, it is finished. Now, we believe a part, we believe the sacrifice was swollen complete at the cross, but we believe Jesus is doing an atoning work in the sanctuary in heaven. But you're going to have a real problem with that if you believe everything was done at the cross. If you believe the gospel was just the, the objective, and so this created, and I'm not going into the history, I'm really fighting going into the history, but this is what Elder Snayman has covered in the past couple of years, and, and, and Duffield does such a great job in his book of giving... Uh, some of this history, and there are other books that are written on the whole historical debacle in the 1950s that came out with the book Questions on Doctrine, where key Adventist leaders met with key evangelical leaders and tried to come to a meeting of the minds. But you have to understand, I just don't even, oh, well, anyway. The, the, the evangelicals they met with were Calvinists who believe in predestination. You're, a Seventh-day Adventist is never going to be able to come to a meeting of the minds with a Calvinist. Because we don't believe in one saved, always saved. We don't believe in predestination. And so to try to even go down that road, but they did. And so in order to obviously come to a happy meeting place, there were things reworded and things rephrased. Of course, consistent with their viewpoint, the teaching that Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to the heavenly sanctuary to complete the atonement is not only ludicrous, it's borderline blasphemous to an evangelical who believes that the gospel, the true gospel, is objective only because Paul warns off the ground, let anybody who teaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. And he says it twice in the book of Galatians. Accursed, anathema, cut off from eternal life from God. Strongest words he could use. This was a major contention, as I mentioned, in the 1950s. The outcome of which was the book Questions on Doctrine, which in turn paved the way for future departures from the biblical concept of justification so powerfully presented in 1888. I mean, what we just read by Jones, you don't have to put on your scholar's hat and say, I wonder what he's saying there. It's just crystal clear. And it wasn't just... As some people will say, well, you have to understand that Wagner and Jones, they went off the rails, and that was a thing he got into later on. No, if you read Jones, it's like all the way through. And incidentally, Ellen White did not just support Jones and Wagner at the 1888 General Conference, then in 1889 say, you know, you've got to worry about this. And Duffield catalogs that in his book. And I've had guys, I have a, a, a I don't, I'll leave him nameless. But I had a pastor come to me, I had encouraged him to read that book, and when he went through that book, and uh, the reason that we encourage the footnotes is the footnotes of all Ellen White, other, histor other, other uh, accounts of our history, they're just the historical facts. And you begin to really realize that much of what you may have heard is historical fiction. And this young man who had been through the seminary, a leader in our church, said to me, he was mad. He said, I was lied to at the seminary about this whole... What happened in 1888? And I'm not trying to throw the seminary under the bus. Don't misunderstand. The, the, I, I guess I would say, you have good and bad people everywhere. Our safety has never been in people, which I'm going to get to. But this paved the way. This whole issue paved the way to, for future departures from that concept that was so clear in 1888 at the heart of the Ford movement. 
of the late 70s and 80s, where my family left the church, was the evangelical view that justification is only a declaration. Uh, from Jeffrey Paxton's book, The Shaking of Adventism, which is a fascinating book on, on the history and spelling things out, he makes this point. The Christological perspective of Ford stands upon the Christological advance of the 1950s. I, I know Adventists say, well, no, 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 you're going overboard with that. But outsiders say, who've looked at it say, no, 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 this is clear. It paved the way, what happened in the 50s, for what Ford did. He just took a logical conclusion. For Dr. Ford, justification is a declaring righteous, not a making righteous. <laughs> uh, I, I'm trying, I, 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 I'll try to cover more tomorrow, but the concern here for many is that if we teach justification actually makes a person righteous, then what you and me, the believer, is going to be tempted to do is always looking at myself to see if I've been made righteous yet. And because I'm not going to see if I'm made righteous yet, and I'm not going to, then I'm never going to have assurance of salvation. That was the contention. That was Ford's contention. That was the contention in the 50s. That's the contention from the evangelicals. I just want to say assurance doesn't come from saying it's done. You can go around and say all the time, it's finished, it's finished. That doesn't give you assurance. Assurance comes from the confidence in the one doing it. And let me say it again. Assurance doesn't come from saying it's done. Assurance comes from the confidence in the one doing it. I mean faith in what Jesus promised to do for you. Let's not, we talk, faith is not nebulous. Have it, has anybody noticed you go into the, you go into the grocery store in the news hand? I, I saw something. It's been a while now. Time magazine. Oh, prayer is a good thing. Faith is a good thing. And it's a nebulous, like prayer. Buddhists pray. Hindus pray. Prayer is good in general. Just Pray, you know? Faith, have faith. There's got to be an object to faith. Faith is believing. Believing in what? Trusting. Trusting in what? The object of faith is Jesus Christ and what he's doing and where he's doing it. And when we get into the heavenly sanctuary on Friday, you'll find that contrary to the heavenly sanctuary being a thing that we've said, we've been told, robs people of assurance, it's one of the places that gives the most assurance because of what Jesus is doing just for you and me. But anyway, I don't have time to get into all that right now. This was Paxton, who was an Anglican minister who wrote this book about Adventists. Desmond Ford passed away March 11, 2019. Okay, very recently. And after his death, an obituary of sorts appeared in the Adventist Review written by Dr. Gerhard Fondel, who's retired from the General Conference Biblical Research Committee Institute, Biblical Research Institute. Fondel, commenting on Ford, says this, Justification is, he's quoting now, what Ford believed. But notice, justification is Christ's work for us on the cross. It happens outside of us. It is a change of status. Through justification, we become children of God. Sanctification, on the other hand, is Christ's work in us through the Holy Spirit. Sanctification changes us into the likeness of Christ. That's what Ford taught. And then he says, this ran counter to the general Adventist understanding at that time that righteousness by faith includes justification and sanctification. Did we not just read that by Ellen White already? That there are those two components in inspiration. At that time, Adventist understanding, most Adventist scholars and pastors today have accepted Ford's definition of righteousness by faith. Now, I don't know how Fondle got away with writing it, because I know a lot of Adventist pastors and scholars afterwards who said, what? <laughs> and not just in Michigan. <laughs> but that's what appeared in the paper. I'm just 
highlighting that this is the level of controversy. Okay? Um, in a recent book published by the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, it makes this point. Some Adventists accept forensic or legal or objective justification in principle, but go on to state that justification means more than imputation of Christ's righteousness. It also includes the process by which Christ actually makes us righteous. Despite protests to the contrary, proponents of this view seem to adopt major Catholic arguments against the Reformers in the 16th century. Justification is both imputed and imparted righteousness. That's not true, but they're, they're making that observation. In other words, this, this book from our seminary is saying if a person believes that justification actually makes a person righteous, then they're actually including imparted, imputed, sanctification, and justification all together in the same thing. That's not true, and we'll look at it tomorrow. My only point in sharing this, there's more I could share. I, don't, I really didn't want to get into the controversy of it, but I'm going to tell you right now. I know you leave this room and you say, man, I learned some great stuff at camp meeting. The righteous, Christ declares us righteousness and it makes us righteousness, makes us righteous. Somebody's going to be, uh, no, 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 no. Who taught you that? That's a false gospel. That's Catholic theology. I'll tell you, I was at the Ohio camp meeting. Before I was in ministry, new Christian, about two years. I had been reading Jones and Wagner, like I told you, and I came across, um, oh, I, I heard at camp meeting that Jack Sequeira was going to be speaking at our camp meeting. Some of you know the name Jack Sequeira. And he was speaking on the 1888 message, so I was excited about it. And I remember going and sitting in the auditorium, one of the first things I heard him say was, anybody who says that the word justify means to make righteous is teaching a Catholic doctrine. And I, you know, keep in mind, I had just been reading Jones and Wagner. And he is supposed to be teaching, look, you can teach whatever you want, but don't call it 1880 a message. Well, well, I'll get to that. So I met with him afterwards. My brother Jim and I, we neither of us were in the ministry yet. And we met with him and had lunch with him. And I want to tell you, Dr. Sequeira is a wonderful, super nice man. But I still disagree with him. And we sat down at the table and I said, listen, in your presentation, you said that Wagner and Jones, or I'm sorry, you said that to say justify means to make a person righteous is Catholic theology straight out of the Council of Trent. And he said, yes. And I said, but Wagner and Jones both taught that. And I'll never forget him looking at us both and saying, but Wagner and Jones didn't have all the light yet. How do you take the essence of their message and then say, I'm presenting their message, but by the way, they didn't have all the light. So what I'm going to tell you is totally opposite of what they... And listen, this whole Catholic idea, you'll hear it. I read it in the book from the seminar, seminary. The, the, the Jones and Wagner concept of, of Christ making us righteous by the declarative power of his word and his own righteousness is not at all the Catholic doctrine from Trent of infused righteousness. Where, where Christ imputes his righteousness, and then because of our observance of the sacraments and our own good works, we develop righteousness that is ours, not his, is not Adventist theology. But you'll read these things or hear these things, and then you'll be like, wow, am I getting led astray? And at this point, you may be saying, well, wait a minute, how am I supposed to know for sure? Oh, incidentally, I thought this was interesting that Wagner himself ran into this in his day. And in the Present Truth, in a Present Truth article, April 23, 1896, he says, A friend has forwarded to me, this is E.J. Uh, e. Wagner writing, A friend has forwarded to me a severe condemnation of a statement made some time ago to the effect that to justify means to make righteous. 
The criticism was based on the fact that Grove's Greek lexicon does not so define the Greek word from which justify is translated. Opening Liddell and Scott's Greek lexicon, I find the very first definition of the word in question is to make righteous. But that is only by the way, he says. Appeals to Greek lexicons do not edify people. It was stated that being justified means being made righteous because that definition is patent from the reading of the English Bible. In other words, Wagner says, look, it's not true that the lexicons are all against this. Some lex lexicons are in favor of what I said. But he said, that's incidental. The reason I shared it that way is because that's how it says it in the Word. <clears throat> so somebody may say, well, how can we be sure? So you're telling this one thing in the seminar, and I'm, there's, you've already said, there's maybe a pastor, or a book, or this or that. I fear in some ways we're retreating back to the Dark Ages. In the Dark Ages, the lay people couldn't have their own Bibles. In the Dark Ages, the priest would not allow the people to have their Bibles for fear that you would read the Bible yourself without the aid of a priest. Today we've replaced priests with scholars and said, you guys are just too dumb to understand it unless a scholar explains it to you. And I would remind you of the words that William Tyndall spoke to the scholars of his day who challenged him. And he said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than you do. Folks, in these last days, our safety is in the word of God. Ellen White says in Great Controversy, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as a standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent. The voice of the majority. Not one or nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. Amen? Satan is constantly endeavoring to attract attention to man in the place of God. He leads the people to look to bishops, to pastors, to professors of theology as their guides, instead of searching the scriptures to learn their duty for themselves. Then by controlling the mind of these leaders, he can influence the multitudes according to his will. Don't take my word for it. Don't take some pastor, some scholar, some book. You've got the word of God and the spirit of truth that God said would lead you into truth. And also the testimony of Jesus to the law and to the testimony. Ellen White says in last day events, men may get up scheme after scheme and the enemy will seek to seduce souls from the truth. But all who believe that the Lord has spoken through Sister White and given her a message will be safe from the many delusions that will come in these last days. Elder's name is going to come and wrap up, but I want to finish with one point. In my own experience, the thing that one thing that's given me great confidence is that when I know when I'm on track with something, I don't have to explain away Ellen White's statements. I've had discussions on this topic, and I've had people disagree, and they say, and I say, Ellen White says, and they say, oh, but you don't understand that she changed her theology. Oh, she did. When you've got to start moving that stuff around, maybe it's your theology. My, my confidence comes in coming to a place in my understanding of Scripture and Spirit of Prophecy where somebody says, but Ellen White says this over here, and I say, I know. They say, oh, she says this, I agree with it. I don't have to change anything. If I've got to start saying, well, you know, over here, she just didn't understand yet, there's something wrong, folks. God has given us an ability to have confidence in the truth, and the truth is simple and it's powerful. That God's Word is declarative, it's creative, it's powerful. 
And when the Lord speaks the word of justification to justify a person, we're transformed in the image of Christ through the presence of Christ. Elders Naaman? Today we're getting into the nitty-gritty. We're getting into the bottom line. It may sound confusing. It needs not to be confusing. We're actually trying to make it simple. We're trying to make it easier to understand. We're not trying to say we're better than anybody else. We're not trying to condemn anybody else. We're simply trying to go back to the Word of God, supported by the spirit of prophecy, and ask a very important question. What does it mean by the term righteousness by faith and Christ our righteousness, how does that become my experience? You have to understand that there was controversy in the church during Ellen White's day. Do you understand that? Okay. So we should not be surprised that there's still controversy. I love my brothers and sisters that are scholars, but I can disagree with them. And I can go back to the history and ask the question, what is the truth of the matter? What does the history tell us? That's why I'm telling you, you need to go back to these books. Only because of the fact that they set the stage for clearing up the confusion of the history. And that helps us to be clear about what we're trying to understand. Where we're trying to go with this issue. Remember that when Jones and Wagner spoke, they did not speak in a vacuum. Ellen White was there. And she continued to march around the world speaking the same message, often with them by her, their, uh, by her side or she by their side, speaking the message and making the message clear. And then you have her writings that say the same thing. Not only what she preached from 1888 and following, but also what she wrote. Steps to Christ is a classic example of that. No confusion there. Simplicity of the gospel, it's there. So when Wagner makes a statement like, Christ gives himself to the sinner, his righteousness is given to the one who has sinned, and who believes, that does not mean that Christ's righteousness, which he did 1,800 years ago, is laid up for the sinner to be simply credited to his account, but it means that his present active righteousness is given to that man. This is what Wagner is saying. There is so much power in the Word of God. There is so much power in Christ. And Wagner is just simply saying that's what the Bible says. Christ comes to live in that man who believes, for he who dwells in the heart by for he dwells in the heart by faith. So the man who was a sinner trans, is transformed into a new man, having the very righteousness of God. Justified, transformed. You with me? That's what the Bible teaches, and it is very clear. Isn't this precisely what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, what? Lives in me. Is Christ living in me transformative? Absolutely. 
or we have no hope. That's not what Paul says, I said that. And he goes on, Paul says, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and um, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ellen White says, Christ became one flesh with us in order that we might become one spirit with him. It is by the virtue of this union that we are to come forth from the grave, not merely as a manifestation of the power of Christ, but because through faith, his life has become ours. Those who see Christ in his true character and receive him into the heart have everlasting life. It is through the Spirit that Christ dwells in us. And the Spirit of God received into the heart by faith is the beginning of life eternal. Desire of ages. There's clarity here. There's simplicity here. It's not confusing. In conclusion... I want to recall what we read on Monday and referred to yesterday and remind you and me of what it's saying. This is a statement from uh, Mount of Blessing, page 18. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving Him. Far too many people make the mistake of separating the righteousness of Christ, from the person of Christ, as if you can have one without the other. It is simply impossible. In the words of Ellen White, we receive righteousness by, righteousness by receiving Him. He truly is the Lord, our righteousness. This is foundational. This is fundamental to what we're going to be talking about in the next two days. You and I cannot be ready for the return of Jesus Christ thinking that we can live on our own and that we can be righteous on our own. We will never be able to live separate from Jesus Christ. Always, by faith, surrendered to Him. But when we are surrendered to Him, he has control of our lives, and His life is transformative, transforming us into the people He wants us to be. Father in heaven, mighty is the power of Your Word. You spoke, and the worlds came into existence. Jesus simply said the word, and the centurion's servant was healed. Power in the word that transforms the life. Oh Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to grasp it. Help us to accept it as the simple teaching of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.